Hello, and welcome to Human Is My Label. This is your host, Emily Purry. I am a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sibling, and a former athlete. I work full time. I am the founder of Rapid, a nonprofit organization, and I'm legally blind. I am so excited about opening the conversation about everything equity. We will primarily be talking about disability, as that is my lived experience, and it is often the minority left out of the equity conversation. I am passionate about equity for all identities, as I have family members from the communities of color, LGBTQIA, disabilities, and we span all ages. It is my goal to normalize these conversations, get people comfortable with the uncomfortable, and include everyone. After all, we are all human. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me for another amazing episode of Human Is My Label. I am fortunate to have another amazing guest, Laura Rao. And I am excited to have her here today because we are talking about something we've never talked about on this podcast. And I'm not even going to give it away yet, but I definitely want you to stay tuned because it's, it's a good one. I'm telling you. So Laura, welcome. Thank you. Happy yes. to be here. Perfect. I am too. I'm really excited. Um, so before we get started, I want to tell everybody kind of the funny story. So I won't <laughs> give away everything you do, but um, a networking uh, colleague of mine introduced Laura and I, and I got the description because I'm always looking for new, interesting guests. I got the description. I said, huh, how does this apply to equity? <laughs> so we started talking and I was like, oh my gosh, we need to do a podcast episode right away. So that's how this evolved. So again, thank you for being here. And why don't you tell the guests a little bit about yourself and your background and of course your identity, since this is a podcast about our identities and our the human humanism of us all. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Well, as you said, my name is Laura Rao. I am an intuitive energy worker and I identify as an empath and an activist. And I grew up on the East Coast. I was a very sensitive child and that is what was repeated to me many, many times. I was too sensitive and it was a fault of mine, a failing mm. of mine that I misinterpreted people's very uh, hurtful comments as, as what they were. I just interpreted them as what they were instead of brushing it off. Mm, okay. This led me, um, I, had, I went to college at the University of Massachusetts. I have a BA in business and I have a master's in organizational management. And I worked until 2013 in some aspect of corporate business life. I was a consultant for a while with small uh, companies working on strategy and leadership. And I was so frustrated by the working world that I left after my divorce and started a business helping people work through emotional trauma using methods that I learned when I was seeing a counselor through my mm -hmm. divorce because this was the most effective 
I had ever felt in a therapy environment was moving, actually moving through things. Wow. That's... And I said, I got to do this. So that's what I did. And I'm as shocked as anybody that this is what I do now. Because <laughs> it's not what I intended. No, that's funny. Yes. yes. When you say, you said you're an energetic, <laughs> what did you just say? Yeah. Intuitive energy healer. Yeah. Empath. That is something I feel like somebody's like born to be, not this somebody just right. falls upon. Nope. <laughs> nope. And we'll get into that because it's, it's, it'll go, it'll intersect what we're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So what does an energetic healer mm-hmm. do? We assist our clients in releasing blocks that are created in our energy system. And as human beings, we have an energy system and we live in a world that is predominantly energy that we interpret as 3D shapes and five sensory um, input. But our energy system, we have an aura, we have a meridian system, which is similar to veins that move blood. Uh, Meridians move energy throughout the body and we have chakras and they're sort of energy centers governing seven parts of the body and there's more than that but the seven are the main ones that we work with when you hear people say chakras that's usually what they're talking about Mm -hmm. and we just help manipulate those blocks so that people can can feel free of what has been blocking their progress in life because usually it's our emotions that block us from um the things that we want to achieve. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so I will say my past lives, I was a massage therapist and I always was like, this is way too wooey wooey. I'll say when I got into all the energy work, cause that just wasn't my style. I was the jock. I was the athlete. I like, sure. I was like hardcore, let's get it done or make me feel really good. And that's it, you know? So when I got yep. to the shop, and all that I was just like whoa too much so (laughs) if you're one of those people out there stick with me stick with me I promise you're gonna have your mind blown here in a few minutes um and that's the hard part is this you know in western medicine we don't really acknowledge the energy except when we're talking about like toxic people in our lives for example right or those kind of energies that are the vibe in the room and we just call it a vibe it's not an energy and it's not something that's felt in our chakras it's but it's just not acknowledged in our culture so it's really interesting to like I said listeners stick with me yeah and really I always for those who have trouble with this concept and feel it's too woo I just go back to quantum physics. This is just energy. It's, it's what it's science. It's just, we can't prove this stuff. We don't have the technology to prove it. Yeah, exactly. And so if you Mm -hmm. don't have the technology, then you, it doesn't exist. Right. Right. (laughs) Yep. Okay. So how has your work with empath as working with empaths? First of all, let's define that. Cause that was my number one mind blowing thing when we talked was how do you define an empath and um, how does that show up either in the workplace or in our, in our social lives? I define an empath as someone who is highly sensitive. And when I use that term, I mean, they're sensitive bodies, their bodies are physiologically more sensitive to 
noise to light to uh, a large crowd. And in addition to that sensitivity, they're also somewhere in the psychic realm. And, you know, again, some of these terms uh, have become problematic because of mm -hmm. what culture has said about them. But um, empaths typically either feel or know what other people are feeling. And if, it, if they can feel it, it's usually in their body. And, you know, I have a niece who, you know, at five would just burst into tears and be like, I don't know why I'm crying. I'm like, yep, I know. And it's okay. You're in a, <laughs> there's a lot of energy going on and I don't know what you're picking up, but it's probably nothing to do with you. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the thing that really spoke to me was the, you know, um, introvert versus extrovert and the loud noises for me, loud noises. And I always attributed it to my vision disability, mm -hmm. um, being sure. more sensitive or aware of, and then, um, obviously light again, contributed to my vision disability, but then my, the intuition and the anxiety, I feel people be like, why are you anxious? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and I never thought about it being, you know, from things and things around me. Um, and so, yeah, interesting, very interesting. Okay, yeah. so now how do we attribute or like uh, build the bridge between an empath and either leadership or diversity? Like, how are we, how are we intertwining this talk about equity and empaths? In my work experience, my very favorite bosses were always empaths. I mm. didn't know this at the time. It's just something that I could look at in hindsight and go oh well of course because empaths have the ability to meet people where they are they see easily through other people's eyes what they're dealing with and mm -hmm. can help them navigate situations in a personal way not giving them you know platitudes not telling them how it should be done but really helping them move through a situation with their own set of skills as that leadership part. Mm. And what I find most lacking in, in business is humanity. Yeah. You know, we are programmed to leave our emotions at the door, leave our values at the door, walk in, do the job that you're instructed to do and, and shut up about it. Just do it. And by the way, give all of your lifeblood to this, even though, you know, should we die, they will replace us in a matter of days. Oh, absolutely. And be so, grateful. Be grateful you have it. That job. is correct. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that is what we've, you know, what this country has been built on. We've lived this way for centuries. And it doesn't need to be this way. Mm -hmm. It's simply a choice that was made and enforced and we can get everything, all of our needs met in ways that don't dehumanize us. But the dehumanization is what keeps the status structure in place. Absolutely. Keeps patriarchy in place. It's what keeps white supremacy in place. Yeah. So white supremacy, um, let's dive into that just in case people are not on that journey of diversity, equity, inclusion yet. And right, white supremacy to many people sounds like it's the people out in the streets, the, you know, skinheads, I say in quotes, those people that are, you know, out and vocal about the white 
white rights and all of that. Um, but white supremacy, what does that mean to you? Um, it's a system of unspoken rules and uh, behaviors that keep white men in particular in power and women through you know a, being adjacent to men mm -hmm. and it is unspoken because if you actually said it out loud what that entailed everyone would be like that's horrible <laughs> but we all know it in our in our soul and we know when we violate it because we expect you know blowback we expect mm -hmm. to be um criticized or have punishment you know whatever that looks like Hello everyone, I am so excited to introduce to all of you Tim Salen, the sponsor of our podcast today. And Tim is with Remax Equity Group, and man, he's different than all the thousands of agents you probably already know. When you're looking to buy or sell a home, and you want somebody who cares, you want somebody who is patient, you want somebody who gives great advice, and you want somebody who is going to get you what you need, you need to call Tim. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just the, the traits of white supremacy of perfectionism and the sense of urgency and that, that hierarchical structure in which we are all supposed to abide by and live by. Um, yep. And I think that's really apparent when you talk about, um, and this is so simple, it's such a simple example of white supremacy and diversity intersecting is that, or the conversations that happen around diversity, I should say, is, you know, we expect professional dress code. Yes. And what does professional dress code mean? And to another culture working in the US, it may not match the US's white supremacist culture of, you know, professional dress code. Absolutely. And so we expect people to fall into our, you know, our box and dress the way we expect them to and speak the way we expect them to and do the way, everything the way we expect them to. Yeah. And that's where that rigidity and that this system is so broken that we just expect everyone to become us instead of valuing each other. Mm -hmm. And owning mistakes. You know, I follow Brene Brown's work because I find her incredible. And she has, her latest book is Dare to Lead. And it's all about showing vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly something that is not in the white supremacy handbook. You do not Absolutely. show vulnerability. Or weakness, yeah. Vulnerability, right. weakness. Nope. But vulnerability in the workplace is what allows us to really in make the best. And the thing is, is that we aren't tapping into the valuable assets we have in business if we don't allow them to flourish and be all they can be. Mm -hmm. And for empaths like myself, I don't love um, a big room full of cubicles. That is not a place that I can actually work productively. I don't like um, team building the way it's designed. I love building teams. I hate the structure that we have <laughs> taken on for team building. Yes. <laughs> I need more quiet. I need you know certain parameters. And we have this love of extrovertedness in this country and um, showing support looks a certain way. It's, it's, you're excited, you're enthused, you're all in. 
And we interpret or misinterpret people's behavior as meaning something. So, well, you're just not as excited about this promotion as somebody else. So I gave it to the one who, who showed me they were more excited. Mm-hmm. And, and it, you know, all of this is just maintaining the, the structure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it doesn't get the people um, fully blossoming into the work that they could be doing. Exactly. And and you're not, you're not drawing on their experience in their lives. And that's the, like, when we think about coaching for interview panels, a lot of people have asked me, you know, how do I coach this person with a disability to be more successful? And I'm like, "Mm, let's flip that situation around. Because how do we coach the employer to be more receptive to a person with a disability? Because that person with a disability is going to bring them another perspective into their business. And um, they have ideas. They might not fit into your pretty little box at initially, but they're going to make your business thrive. And that's that's any minority community. You know, they Absolutely. don't fit that that word fit. And I say that in quotation marks is that it's not a good fit. Well, yeah. you're never going to go anywhere if everyone's a good fit because everything, every thought, every <laughs> it just means you're going to get along to get along. Yeah, and it's pretty homogenized what you end up with. Mm-hmm. You know, group things tend to go to the lowest common denominator instead of going against the grain and, and picking something out that might be out of the box and mm-hmm. that some people in the group have a problem with. And it's difficult to convince people of that until they've kind of experienced it a little bit. And, you know, going back to the empath, Highly sensitive people have some ridiculously good skill sets if you want to innovate because they, they see things um, from a very deep perspective. They can connect dots and create systems of, of thinking and, and work that it just comes naturally to them. It's mm-hmm. very easy. And this is what can you know, revolutionize different in, in industries as being able to put the pieces together in a different way with a different and better result. And when we are all cooks in the kitchen that, you know, do the same recipe the same way, then we get the same thing and we don't get to grow and expand. Exactly, exactly. Oh, it's just so much. So if for all the listeners, when Laura and I first talked, I was just like, wait, I don't identify as an empath. That was not my, I was like, Meh, whatever. But the codependency piece, I definitely identify with. And my family will tell you all day that I want, <laughs> and I think this is something, you know, a lot of mothers feel, I will say that is if we're going to go out and play in the backyard, I want everybody to be happy. I don't want any fighting. I want right. everybody to be smiling because when everyone's smiling and happy, having a good time, I'm allowed to have a good time. Mm-hmm. And so that piece of codependency or something I'm really working on that I can be happy without them being happy. I have yes. not even come close to conquering it. Trust me. But <laughs> <laughs> yep. um, when I think about that with the comment you just said about um, teams and team building, you're also tapping into like, hey, I know Laura's really uncomfortable across the table. It's not because she said anything, but I can tell. Yep. I can tell that so-and-so is not down with that, that idea. And so 
I will often say in meetings and team meetings, like, let's explore some different options. Cause I am not feeling like everybody's on board with this because right. then you can pull people out of that same pattern of, um, just get agreeing to, to agree. Yeah. And so I think those empaths, like you're saying, having them on the team. And again, like I said, I don't <laughs> until our conversation a few days ago, I did not identify as an empath, yeah. but I definitely want everybody on the, the team to be happy and be feel heard. And so that's yeah. really interesting to think about in a team setting and then in a family setting. Yeah, indeed. So what is the best way just kind of going off that when I said, mm -hmm. you know, probably a lot of mothers agree with me on this. Um, what's the best way to just one idea? I know you're, you, you do this for a living, yeah. but like, what is one of the best ways for people to um, take care of themselves in a position like this as an empath, especially in a workplace setting? I think that's really, totally. I mean, in, in our families, it's hard because there's love there. There's all sorts of things there, but in a workplace setting, how do you take care of yourself as an empath? I, I'm no longer in a workplace setting. So that tells you one thing. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of, of how you get through day to day, it's about taking care of your energy field. And I realize that sounds very woo, but the reason that we care too much about how other people feel is because we feel what they feel. And if they are uncomfortable, we're inherently uncomfortable because we're mm -hmm. picking up on how they feel. And there are ways to mitigate how much of other people's stuff we feel, but it requires some maintenance on our end to clear our energy field and maintain a strong energetic boundary so that we cannot be as susceptible to the moods of other people in the room to, mm. and this is good for leaders too, because sometimes wanting to please people isn't in the best interests of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And and you have to be able to hold a hard line even when it's uncomfortable. Yeah. So really taking care of the energy field, grounding, making sure you're in the body, making sure you're uh, fully aware of of yourself and what's going on around you mm. that is so hard yes it is <laughs> so the it story is so I, hard the story i told laura is i you know of course so i think the other piece of this is that you know empaths don't get mad about the fact that they're feeling all these things and it's totally not true i get angry <laughs> Because I'm like, everyone, just be happy. How hard is it? <laughs> just be happy. We're having fun, right? I mean, like, come on. <laughs> yep. And um, um, I told my husband, I, and, and he won't be mad at me because I put our lives on this thing. Um, yeah. I've told him he's toxic. Like, when he's pissed off, I can't be happy. Mm -hmm. Like, stop being pissed off. So <laughs> an example, I like to go for walks. <laughs> Yeah. And he'll be like, fine, I'll go for a walk. And he'll get really, <laughs> but he'll go on a walk and be super pissed off the whole time. And I was like, now yeah. you just ruined my walk. <laughs> right. Because I didn't, I let him get to me in a sense mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. let him be pissed off. But he also wants to make me happy. So he goes with me and I'm like, no, if you're going to be a butthead, then just don't come <laughs> and yep. I'll get over it. 
Um, yeah. But it's like that toxicity because for him, with him and I, like I want him to be happy so badly that when he's not, and when I know something's bothering him, yeah, and he, you know, has mental health stuff going on. So when he, sometimes I will know it before he knows it, mm-hmm. and then a couple of days later he'll be like, "Yeah, I was really irritated about this, this, and this." I'm like, "Well, no kidding, I told you that." <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. And he's like, "Well, I didn't know," and I'm like, "Well, I did. So just listen to me, and we'll be fine." <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't go over well in a marriage, just uh, sadly, no, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so it's just really interesting to think about that absorbing and being able to take care of myself. Yeah. And be able to say, no, it's okay. If he's upset, I can go on my walk by myself and not be mad the whole time. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yep. And, you know, this is imperfect work. There is no perfection to any of this because we are imperfect and energy, you know, it does what it does. And, you know, one of my teachers said, there's no such thing as shielding yourself as an empath. Like we just have to learn how to maintain it better. God, and it's, come on, it's, I want the magic pill. I know, I'm with you, <laughs> but it does get easier. It does get easier and we can learn tools to help this. Yeah, I definitely think awareness is is key yeah. um, to any kind of struggles we're going through is really, you know, being able to self, be self-aware of what we're, yeah. what we're going through. And, you know, I want to touch on self-awareness because I... There's a statistic, and I believe it's 95% of the time we operate from a a trance-like state. We're going through the motions and we're doing, um, we're reacting in kind of unconscious ways where it, being conscious is the, not the norm. And when we choose to become conscious, giving ourselves grace and realizing that we're going upstream, we're going against the tide. And I do believe that this unconsciousness is a form of dissociation that we do because we don't really like what's going on around us. We learn it as mm. children. We can't voice it because we're not sophisticated enough to, to know the, the nuances exactly of what's happening around us. Yeah. But we see people behaving in ways that don't match with what we're taught. And then we don't know what to do with that. So we just sort of go, oh, don't know how to deal with that. Cognitive dissonance. I'm checking out. Interesting. And that speaks to, you know, unconscious bias when we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, when we're talking about, you know, I talk primarily about disability in the workplace and just that freak out moment of like, I'm just going to ignore this because- Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what to do with it. I, I don't know how to put it in a compartment that feels good. Exactly. And so when you're really going through that, um, you know, that's what it, one of the tips I always say is when you're in that, in that moment of discomfort, stop, because stop right there and figure out why you're uncomfortable. That's right. And being and, just like, yep. huh, I'm uncomfortable because I've always associated a tall black man with X, Y, and Z. Or I've always associated disability with somebody who's going to need more, want more, ask for more of whatever it is. Yep. Um, and so then when you stop and check yourself for a second, but it makes sense if 95% of the time we're unconscious, that's why yep. mistakes in society are happening. Absolutely. 
Mm. And it's why we're willing when we're a white male judge to let a young white male off the hook for rape. Mm. Because we identify on some level with an instinct that we had at one point and we don't want, we want to protect them. And we all want to protect our own quote unquote. Yeah. You know, that is just a natural instinct. But when we can be aware and objective and it's, and compassionate all at the same time, <laughs> you know, which isn't always easy, but that's, you know, that's the goal I think is to have, I think that's what awareness is about. It's, it's being able to not compartmentalize, but just know that life is messy. It just mm -hmm. is. It's never going to fit in a box and be perfect. No, no. And that brings up another good thought of, you know, diversity and equity. You know, my husband's black for those of you who haven't listened before and I have a disability and we are the first two to say that. And he says, not, not myself, but he'll say, not all black people are right. And I say, not all people with disabilities are motivated and, and ready to go. And, yeah. and, you know, as ambitious as I am, as I stand up here in front of you and speak, but we're all human and there are varieties of every human within every race, within every ability, within every gender. But when you, in our culture, when you apply a lens of racial equity or a race or um, disability, all of a sudden you fall into these stereotypes. And so you really have to stop yourself and think, um, Mm -hmm. Am I standing up for the right reasons? And am I not standing up for the, not the right reasons? Like I'm not going to defend every person with a disability and say that they're a go-getter and they're a hard worker and that you should hire every single person with a disability. No, that yeah. person with a disability needs to work for it and needs to be a, a good worker and, you know, make sure they're advocating either for themselves or have somebody in place to advocate for them. But no, not every person with disability is perfect. No. <laughs> <laughs> and we shouldn't require them to be perfect in order to deserve something. And that's what I'm Yeah, no one is perfect. And just yes. because I have white skin, like I do, doesn't mean that I'm perfect. No. And that's the, the assumption. And I think it was my sister I was just talking to the other day. I, I won't out any communities in the Oregon area, but she was in a more wealthy area and looked around and said, geez, Louise, these are all old white men. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have to do anything to get to where there are other than be white men. And so that in itself is just like, whoa. And you see men sitting around and yes, they worked hard. So don't take me wrong. Yes, they did. But the opportunity was most likely much yeah. easier to get than it would be for a black man to achieve mm -hmm. that or a white or a black woman or a person with a disability a person these people are gonna have to work much harder That's to right. even be considered for the opportunity before they work really hard exactly. <laughs> and they have to em emulate the white man mm -hmm. we you know as much as we want to think we're we're diverse and and woke now because we had a black president we had a black president who was a was acceptable because he was very good at, at crossing over into the white community. Absolutely. And that's not the same as, you know, embracing culture. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. 
And I agree. I think that even my success as a legally blind woman, mm-hmm. I can appear quote unquote normal, especially over Zoom when you can't see my guide dog or when I don't have to make eye contact or stumble around the room, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and even when I'm on stage, if you get me on stage and I'm good to go or my dog gets me on stage, I'm good. And yeah. I can appear to be able-bodied, white, blonde hair, blue eyed. And I fit that norm yeah. that allows me in the door. Yeah. Um, a lot of times when I'm at networking events, for example, I, I get in the door <laughs> before I had my guide dog, especially. Um, I would you know, make my way to whatever, but I couldn't see the name tags or I couldn't yeah. see where my table was or I couldn't see all these different things. So I got that privilege of being white, blonde or blue eyed. But then as soon as I was discovered to be disabled, people were like, oh my gosh, what do I need to do? Oh my gosh, oh my God, like this, it's just like yes. this. And so the more able-bodied I'm able to act at times, the more privilege I have. Um, another example of that is <clears throat> my good friend, Patty in Oklahoma. <laughs> she just had another experience, another one. And I say another one because it happens to especially blind people who have guide dogs all the time. Uber and Lyft drivers, um, passing them by, completely passing them by. Like I get a lot of canceled rides when I have my dog with me. Um, Then there's drivers who actually stop and then say, sorry, I can't take you because you have a dog. I'm like, no, she's like a real service dog. Nope, she can't fit. I can't have her. Nope, nope, nope. And then um, my good friend, Patty, she got, and there was somebody who's like, you need forms, you need this. There's no forms you need for an Uber. yeah. And actually denied her and her friends a ride wow. <laughs> completely like get out of my car. Cause all the friends had jumped in. Wow. And it was just like, if she wouldn't have had her dog, she yeah. would have been fine. But since she had her guide dog with her, she was denied service, <clears throat> which is highly illegal, but she's working on that. Right. So, I mean, it's just that, that perception of able-bodiedness or the perception of like you're saying, Brock, he played to both sides of the both sides of the fence, if you will. Yeah. And you know, from the empath viewpoint, I've always very cautious when getting to know people because there's an expectation of me based on my looks and my whiteness and my ability to show up for a brief period of time like a quote unquote normal person. Um, <laughs> And I'm always waiting for them to realize, you know, that I'm a little different or that I process slower and I need more time to, Mm. you know, come up with an answer to something and that I prefer email to phone calls because I'm slower on a phone call at processing what they're saying. And I will often agree because that's what I was taught to do. Mm. And, And then I'm agreeing to something I didn't actually want to do and now I have to go say no. And then I'm inconsistent. I, you know, there's a lot of labels oh, that get placed. Interesting. So it is, it is challenging, I think, for empath for neurodiverse people to uh, show up at, at work, to show up in, in life. Uh, because of these inherent things that there's no sign on us that says we're different. There's no sign that says we're, you know, 
we might sh we, we might break your heart or disappoint you in a way because I've had so many experiences over the years of people expecting me to be different than I was. Mm. And um, I'm not exactly sure what that means, except that I looked like I was part of the pretty able-bodied have it all privilege. And I didn't really show up that way. I show mm. up fighting for the underdog, working for equity, challenging stereotypes. And that's not comfortable for some people. Absolutely. Yeah. When they think they trust you because of your, your outward appearance, especially. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Okay. So that brings me to our last kind of question of the day, mm -hmm. which I'll be interested to see. So the very, very, very new verdict happened today um, for the George Floyd case. And I am curious to hear your thoughts about the verdict um, of the police officer who killed George Floyd and how you think it's going to affect. Uh, obviously, you know, just based on our conversation, we're we're happy about the verdict. But what is the? Well, I am. Let me speak for myself. I am. <laughs> okay. Definitely. <laughs> um, uh, happy about the verdict. And what do you think the fallout is going to be? And what do you think the do you feel like this is a movement? Is this is this progress or is this peer pressure <laughs> or is right. this? And that's what my fear is. But um, right. I would be interested to see what what's your take on the whole situation. I feel like this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to do the right thing, mm -hmm. to open some dialogue, to create some policy, to change some structure that supports more police accountability more uh, and I, it's not training but there is rewriting policy rewriting the way our justice system works so that it is more equitable and in mm. fact supports peace and not power over mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but do i think that's a given? No, I don't. Sadly, I think it's going to depend on how the administration, the current federal administration responds. It's going to depend on how individual police departments respond. Here in Portland, the mayor just before the verdict announced a 24-hour emergency declaration so that he can impose a curfew and call in the National Guard if he wants to. And while I understand that, you know, he's been allowing all of these protests and nightly battles with police to go on for almost a year now. And I, it's just interesting to me that this is a moment that he's worried about. He should mm -hmm. be. It seems like it does, it makes sense, but we allow so much of this to just continue without intervention and it's beyond time for that intervention. Absolutely. Well, and my thoughts on that is even just the fact that our mayor was nervous that the verdict would have gone the other way. Yep. Means that we have not made that much progress. Okay. That the 
decision was that 50-50. I mean, Minneapolis was, um, you know, locked down as well. Everyone had, you know, National Guard out, everything. But that means that it was that 50-50 mm -hmm. versus it being a no-brainer. Right. Um, and so that says no progress <laughs> in one light to me. But the fact that the verdict went, you know, right. the right way, in my opinion, um, that it, at least it did. And we're not sitting here saying, oh my God, another one got away. Um, but the fact that so yeah. many very higher up officials were nervous about it says a lot to me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, we've had a lot of veils dropping in the last few years. And mm -hmm. I like to point to the Harvey Weinstein case. Mm. And, you know, that to me, it was swift. It was unprecedented that women were heard and listened to and dealt with. And mm -hmm. it, it provided a moment where everybody kind of went, uh, yeah, how is it again that women are responsible for their own rape? Yeah, that's bullshit. This isn't real. <laughs> exactly. And it never was, but we mm -hmm. all bought into that structure and that belief system. This feels like another moment where some veils have dropped. And I think the people of the United States see what's wrong, the majority. Mm -hmm. It's now changing the administrations and the police departments and, and waking them up to what is now obvious to a lot of us. And mm -hmm. I think that happens in moments, in moments like this. And I hope that there's more of them. And I hope this catches fire, so to speak, and really does the job. Um, but either way, it's a long road forward. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Do you think <laughs> this will actually either the police reform or, you know, whatever that looks like? So yeah. many conversations about that. Do you think that the that and or I'll say major change in the racial justice fight will change in our lifetime. I think it's hard. I am so hopeful and so disheartened <laughs> that it's really hard for me to be objective about that. And I'll mm. say it's hard for me to imagine that being true and I do really feel like something is birthing right now that will have lasting change. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I think it will be different. I already see a difference from my kids. I have an eight-year-old and I have a 17-year-old and a 21-year-old. 21-year-old's not as much in the community um, and not seeing as much of that. But the 17-year-old, he definitely is. And we definitely talk to him about it. He drives, he's a black yeah. man. He's, you know, a teenager, <sighs> help me, yeah. help me, help me. Um, but, um, you know, they, they see life differently than we do. Thank goodness. Um, yeah. At least in our community, he is in a more diverse community, um, not necessarily black diverse, but um, different cultures, different communities around him at his school. But I think he, he sees it differently. And so I'm hoping mm -hmm. that if we can make 
like you said, if we can birth those changes, his yeah. generation can take them on as a 17 yeah. year old, he's going to be rolling into taking this over and it will last. Um, yeah. He sees this as all being ridiculous and <laughs> all these things. Um, Thank God. Right. I'm, I yeah. am. I have um, nibblings the same age group, 20 and, and 17, and they are amazing to me because they really can, can explain it in a way that, you know, a lot of us in Gen X and, and such have a still challenge putting words to these things, you know? Yeah. I, I have a transgender male nephew and a binary nibbling non-binary nibbling and you know I think it's to them they're very like this is this is the way forward and I look at look at all these labels and I I think they're this is what we need in this moment and they'll mm -hmm. bring that forward to actually erase all of the need for the labels yeah absolutely no I agree and I'm glad they see it absolutely Okay, so before we wrap up, how do people find you? What is your your um, specialty? I know you said the energetic healing. Yep. Is that for leaders? Is that for everyone? How do you best? Um, who's your your ideal client, and who who? How can they find you? My ideal client is really anyone identifying in any way as an empath. Mm. Um, it, you can be a beginner or you can be more in there, but you know, empaths come in all the shapes and sizes, just like any diverse culture has. Yes. And some of us are born with more confidence, with better um, environments at home. So we're not raised with so much emotional baggage. And some of us aren't, and we have end up because of this empathness and this way that we interact with people we have more baggage and we have more need to have help navigating our way out and into a more fulfilling life. Mm. Those are my people. Um, business, usually my, my business clients are small business owners in the creative uh, fields, um, mm. healing fields who left business or never entered business because <laughs> it didn't fit them. They yeah. didn't feel like it made sense to them. And now they're having to deal with their stuff around being visible when they've wanted to be invisible and you can't be invisible and be in business. That doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> not work. So those types of, of issues that they now face and, and if they want to succeed, they need to work through some of their stuff. Perfect. And you're the best place you can be reached. And I will also post it on the show notes as well. Perfect. Uh, my uh, website is thevitalspirit.net, H-T-T-P-S, thevitalspirit.net. And I'm also on LinkedIn uh, via my name, Laura Brow, and Instagram. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much. And everyone out there who is like me, you know, former jock or, you know, you know, reality based or whatever you want to call yourself. Rational. Yes. <laughs> Rational. That's another one. Yes. Very down to earth. All those things that we say yeah. about ourselves. Reach out to Laura. I'm telling you, I probably will like tonight. Um, <laughs> 
just because you know if we're truly in the in the spirit of equity we are open to multiple ways of feeling feeling better and being better and being better humans and whether that's energetic physical mental whatever that is we need to explore it so Thank you so much, Laura, for joining me tonight. And I look forward to engaging with you in the future. Everyone check out the show notes for Laura's information. And I will see you all next Wednesday. Have a great week and make it a good one. Thank you so much for joining me here today at Human Is My Label. Don't forget to subscribe, share this with your friends, families, and coworkers. Get out there. Get comfortable with the uncomfortable, include everyone, and push yourself to be better every day. If you're interested in coaching or corporate training or learning more about RAPID, visit us at rapidorgan.org. That's R-A-P-I-D-O-R-E-G-O-N.org. You can find me at emily.purry on Instagram and all my other social handles are below. Have a great day and I can't wait to see you next week.